Summertime is synonymous with many things. The beach, barbecues, baseball, and something that doesn't start with a B. Movies. Hollywood is known for releasing some of its biggest and most expensive films of the year during the summer. In fact, it seems like a new blockbuster film is released every week in hopes of luring audiences into air-conditioned multiplexes. And for those who choose to watch a movie sans AC, the city is home to a wide variety of outdoor screenings during the warmer months. Good morning. I'm George Boracki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we're rolling with a movie's theme. Glad you're with us. Hollywood has long been smitten with New York City. Countless films have been set in the Big Apple, or a fictionalized version of it. Joining me in the studio this morning is Professor Jeffrey Wazotsky. He's the director of the Media and Digital Film Production Program at Bronx Community College. Professor Wazotsky has kindly put together a list for us of the top 20 New York City films of all time, or at least his top 20 list. Professor Wazotsky, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. New York City has been the backdrop for many, many movies over the years. A fair number of them involving mobsters, including The Godfather, of course. That's right. I think the Hollywood production companies that come here love the seamy side of New York and love to shoot on location mobster movies. You look, Tara, once a day, once you rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's going to give you what you want. Too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. What do you like most about The Godfather? You know, The Godfather was very special to me because as a teenager at Evander Childs High School, I made a spoof on the film that won a National Kodak Teenage Movie Award. And uh, it's really propelled my career into the film and television industry. Uh, years later, uh, getting a degree in film from City College Picker Film Institute and then going on to Columbia University. So I really owe my uh, my entry into this industry and eventually joining the Directors Guild um, because of The Godfather. Other mobster films set in New York City, Goodfellas and A Bronx Tale. Bill Mazeroski. I hate him. He made Mickey Mantle cry. The paper said that Mick was crying. Mickey Mantle, is that what you're upset about? Mickey Mantle makes $100,000 a year. How much does your father make? I don't know. You don't know? Well, see if your father can't pay the rent. Go with Mickey Mantle and see what he tells you. Mickey Mantle don't care about you, so why should you care about him? Nobody cares. <laughs> Wonderful films. And interesting, The Bronx Tale uh, was not shot all in, in the Bronx, if, if uh, not at all. It was all shot in Astoria, Queens. But again, uh, you know, this uh, segment of your show, The Greatest Films That Feature New York City, Definitely two of uh, two of my favorite films that were on my uh, top 20 list. Martin Scorsese was the director of Goodfellas, and in addition to that movie, he also directed Mean Streets, set in New York City. What was that film about? You know, when, when I saw that film, as, and I was in, um, I believe I was in high school at that time, I walked into the theater thinking that I was going to see, again, the seamy side of New York, uh, Lower East Side, uh, you know, men being made into mobsters and being made men. And all of a sudden, Harvey Keitel, I believe I came in late into the theater, was walking into a bar with music playing with a handheld camera. 
And for one moment, I looked at the screen and I looked at my my three friends that were with me and I said, this is going to be a good movie. And I think it's because of the 60s music that was playing, the handheld, um, the look on Harvey Keitel's face that he's coming into this club like he owns it. Um, this whole underworld of um, of religion and also mobsters that was taking place in that character. And then reading about Scorsese that he once was going to be a priest and all the re- religious uh, icons in that film, uh, even when someone is murdered uh, or when a, in the beginning of the film a mailbox blows up. So what was uh, the main thrust of that movie? Uh, mean Streets, to me, looking back, it was that was back in the 70s, George, was really about um, Harvey Keitel's character coming into being in this world of um, bad people, of murderers, of mobsters, and the uh, friendships that he made growing up in the neighborhood, and now how he's either going to change or he's going to go the way of the mob. What do you think a movie like Mean Streets did for New York City's reputation during that time? You know, I have to tell you, when Fort Apache the Bronx came out with Paul Newman... Another movie, yeah, of course, in New York. The, and the, um, the black eye that this borough got during that Charlotte Street uh, visits by Reagan and Jimmy Carter. I mean, we were really looked upon, um, um, and you know, the Bronx was looked upon as an icon for urban decay. I you know there was a book at the uh, Bronx Museum on the Arts uh, that I read in the 70s called Bronx Devastation Resurrection. And I think a lot of the movies that were focusing on gangsters and, you know, uh, that New York, you know, was, uh, you know, every street in New York had, had, uh, had made men sitting in coffee shops drinking uh, cappuccinos with pinky rings um, was not a good thing, you know, because uh, you felt like if you came here, it was like uh, living in a scene from The Godfather. So I don't, I don't think it did great things for for tourism in terms of the side streets of uh, Arthur Avenue and other great iconic neighborhoods that were really safe and good neighborhoods, um, but were getting this black eye by films that were. Um, Sort of glorifying the violence and uh, and and the and the mafia. Another movie that I'm sure did not do good things for tourism in New York City is the Taking of Pelham One Two Three, a movie that tells the story of a hijacked subway train in New York City. First of all, was that based on a true story? You know, I I yesterday when I printed out um, the poster for that film, and I was interesting, and I'm trying to find it as I'm speaking to you where they were selling the idea that you want to take a roller coaster ride for two hours and see what happens when a New York City subway car gets hijacked, was a roller coaster ride of suspense. I think as years have gone by and when they remade the film with, I believe, um, John Travolta John was in Travolta, the remake. John Travolta, correct, yes. When you look back and it sort of forced people to go back to the first film, you realize what great acting was in that film with Martin Balsam and Walter Matthau. I mean, there were great performances by Robert Shore, and it became, to me, like a classic. Uh, did it do great things for writing the New York City subway system? I know after I saw that film, I was always um, a little hesitant when I see five men walk on with attached A cases, and I started thinking the film and walk to another car. I think that happens with any film. You know, you start to get these iconic images of what... You know, what terrorism is all about, what it would be like to be on a train and get hijacked, you know. Um, So I think if you live in New York, you sort of get accustomed to movies that sort of um, have, you know, have a pun on city life and you sort of make it into your own fantasy. Uh, I never had a problem riding the trains after that, but it does make you think. Hey, come on, where's that lesson 144? Hey, Frank, you're hogging all my circuits. What do you want from me? I got motorman calling me from all over the line. Well, tell him to shut up and get off the air and eat some more lines off from here. 
The way I never thought I'd see the day when talking to murderers took priority over running a railroad. Get off it, will you, Frank? My only priority is saving the lives of these passengers. Gang culture in 1960s New York City was put on full display in the movie The Wanderers. It depicted a much different city than we know today, of course. Absolutely. And I think uh, what's so special about The Wanderers was that it was written by Richard Price, uh, a Bronxite who grew up in Parkside houses in the Bronx, not far from Fordham University, and that it was turned into a film by a San Francisco filmmaker, Philip Kaufman, right after he directed Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So as Richard Price once said in a, uh, at a screening of the film and a question from the audience uh, uh, to him uh, was addressed that, um, you know, is this movie that Mr. Kaufman directed from your book, uh, your book? And, and Richard Price said, you know, it's, it's Phil Kaufman's interpretation of my book. My book is my book. I think when you take a director and, and, uh, like Kaufman and put him into the, uh, into the Richard Price novel, his interpretation is going to always be different than uh, what Richard Price had in mind. I would love to see Richard Price direct that film uh, uh, today and, and what it would look like. Um, but it's really a great film. The iconic scenes in the Bronx uh, from Fordham Road to Pelham Parkway. I was a location scout on that film when I was a film student. Uh, it really uh, you know, shows the Bronx in the 60s and the Fordham Baldies and the gangs and what was going on here. But again, in a different light from a different director. I, I don't know why a New York director didn't. Uh, it would be nice to see even Martin Scorsese direct The Wanderers. I just felt it was it was never the eye of a, of a New Yorker. You know, then to say Milos Forman does Taking Off from Czechoslovakia makes a wonderful film too. I just think there was a lot in that movie. After you know, that was one of my favorite books that I read when I was in high school, and uh, I had such a love and affection for the story. And when it was turned into the to the movie that it was, it just wasn't the same. Another film involving gangs in New York City, West Side Story. Have to talk about West Side Story, don't we? When you're a jet, you're a jet All the way from your first cigarette To your last dying day When you're a jet, let them do what they can You've got brothers around, you're a family man You know, when I show that film um, from time to time at Bronx Community College, uh, the opening scene on the uh, director's cut on the Criterion Collection edition has this great scene of the credits being developed over sort of dripping artwork on a handball court. And once that scene is over and you see the the characters dancing through lower Manhattan, uh, it's such a vibrant way to open up a movie that's not only a musical, uh, but also just a classic film shot in New York, uh, backdrop 1960s, um, great acting, great directing, Robert Wise from Citizen Kane, Jerome Robbins choreography. They, the film is just uh, uh, one of the great films that, um, that you have to see as being a young filmmaker. Let's take a look at New York City through the lens of director Woody Allen. The movie Manhattan, for instance. Wonderful film. He adored New York City. He idolized it all out of proportion. Uh, no, make that, he, he romanticized it all out of proportion. Yeah. To him, no matter what the season was, 
this was still a town that existed in black and white and pulsated to the great tunes of George Gershwin. Uh, now, let me start this over. Chapter one. When you always see reviews of Manhattan and you see that wonderful scene with Woody Allen sitting down on the park bench looking over the Brooklyn Bridge in black and white, also shot by um, a wonderful cinematographer. If I'm correct, it was um, Gordon Willis who also shot The Godfather. Black and white, just stunning. I mean, every scene in that movie is is like a picture postcard, and it really is a uh, a picture postcard to New York. Um, great acting, great Woody Allen story. You know, I, I, when I was a film student, you would pass by a Woody Allen movie and you would you know, ask yourself, am I in a Woody Allen mood tonight to see a Woody Allen film? And I think that's the way I've always looked at Woody Allen. You know, expect something from him every year and expect something uh, completely different than what he did the year before. And Manhattan uh, fits that genre. Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing is marking its 25th anniversary this year, and there's been a lot of fanfare around this anniversary. Why do you think that is? You know, when you look at, at, at Do the Right Thing, when it came out, you know, and the whole thing that was happening in New York, the hot summer, there was rioting in the street, and the film has really become sort of a political meta- metaphor of our times, um, I believe the mayor at that time was, um, I think it was Giuliani. I could be wrong. Um, but there was a, a big change happening in New York. There was a lot of um, pressure. I know when that film came out, when Danny Aiello, uh, Aiello played the role of the pizza owner, and um, even the Criterion Collection has a wonderful um, um, section of the film that talks about you know, how everyone in the film really knew they were making something special. I mean, it was uh, Rosie Perez's, I believe, premier uh, role in the film, who became a wonderful and very successful actress. Do the right thing to me, uh, when as a young filmmaker, the vibrant colors, the music. I remember when Vincent Camby did the review in the New York Times that when the film opened up, he knew right away he was in for a classic uh, uh exercise in uh, independent filmmaking. I mean, that film, I, I remember, won a uh, Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay. And the, I don't believe it won that year, but the films that it was up against was were, um, were wonderful films also. But I think that that is Spike Lee's film. I think, you know, when you look back at Spike Lee's career, even today, I think that's, that's the film that uh, he will be remembered for. Ernest Borgnine plays the lead role in the movie Marty. His character is a lonely Bronx butcher who still lives with his love-smothering mother. It's such an endearing film. I love Marty. Uh, I go to the Arthur Avenue market twice a month, sometimes three times a month. And whenever I pass by David Greco's uh, Mike's Deli booth, I think of Ernest Borgdine, you know, chopping uh, steaks in the, uh, in the butcher section. Uh, you know, the opening scene for Marty, if you look at the, the credit, you know, the opening credit... You know, with this wonderful cartoon lettering over the Arthur Avenue Market, 1955, is very special. And I think that whole idea about, you know, what are you going to do tonight, Marty, of hanging out with your friends. Here's the the guy who did not get married yet, this lonely butcher meeting this lonely Bronx librarian. Actually, she didn't live in the Bronx. He had to take her, I believe, to Brooklyn. But I think the whole idea that, you know, change happens, even for someone like Marty, who really thought he wasn't going to meet someone and fall in love and get married. And um, Patty Chayefsky from the Bronx, wonderful screenwriter, great writer, his voice and the way he captured the essence of, the, of, of that 
era and those Italian Americans in, in, in the borough is very special. And I think any young screenwriter who wants to learn how to write needs to watch that film ten times and really listen to the words. So, what are you going to do tonight, Marty? I don't know, Ma. I'm all knocked out. I may just hang around the house. Why don't you go to the Stardust Ballroom? What? I, I say, why don't you go to the Stardust Ballroom? It's loaded with tomatoes. It's loaded with what? Tomatoes. <laughs> Who told you about the Stardust Ballroom, huh? Tommy. He says it's a very nice place. Oh, Thomas. My, it's just a big dance hall. That's all it is. I've been there a hundred times. <laughs> loaded with tomatoes. Well, you're funny, Ma. Marty, I don't want you hanging around the house tonight. I want you to go take a shave Talking about Italian-Americans in New York City, we can't talk about movies set in New York without talking about Saturday Night Fever. One of, the, one of my great favorite films. And I know that there's been a lot written about Saturday Night Fever in terms of, um, you know, how it was made on a low budget. And, you know, John Travolta was a, a major star then from Welcome Back, Cotter. I understand that they had to shoot the movies sometimes 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning because when they started shooting at 10 o'clock in the morning, the crowds would be so large for Travolta that they, they just couldn't do what they needed to do as a film crew. And I think as the years go by and you listen to the Bee Gees music and now there's only one of the three Bee Gees left, and you realize, you know, John Travolta is now, you know, going to be pushing 60 soon. I mean, that's that's the movie of our time. I had the white polyester suit. I went, you know, to the dance halls, to the discos, to the soap factory, and, and you know, try to play the John Travolta character. I think we all did in some essence. We all wanted to Friday night, Saturday night, we wanted to go and uh, experience the disco scene, and I think that film captured that that time in our lives so well. You put together a top 20 list of the greatest films that feature New York City for us. We can't get to any more of them. We are out of time. But we will put your full list on our website, wfuv.org slash cityscape. Professor Wazotsky, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Jeffrey Wazotsky is the director of the Media and Digital Film Production Program at Bronx Community College. Once again, for his list of the top 20 New York City movies of all time, visit WFUV.org slash Cityscape. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Bodarki. Astoria Studios has been cranking out homemade New York City films since the 1920s. Over the years, it's changed owners, expanded, and even incorporated a museum on site. The Museum of the Moving Image currently features an exhibition of the studio's history. Cityscape producer Veronica Volk sat down with its curator in Astoria, Queens. Hi, my name is Barbara Miller. I'm the curator of the collection and exhibitions here at Museum of the Moving Image. The studio that stands across the street from us, now known as Kaufman Astoria Studios, was built originally in 1919 by what was called Famous Players Lasky, which then soon became Paramount Studios. They built it to consolidate a bunch of other studios and labs that they had had around Manhattan 
and really seeing Astoria sort of the new frontier because of improved access through the elevated subway and through the Queensboro Bridge. They felt like they had the space to really consolidate everything here on site and opened up this really giant complex in 1920 to do all of their um, or most of their East Coast shooting and their film printing. So what was the film culture like in New York back in the 1920s as opposed to, say, the West Coast? New York was really home to uh, filmmaking. A lot of the sort of initial efforts in the early days of filmmaking happened, you know, all happened here on the East Coast. California started to become a player in the kind of the mid-teens, but there was still a very healthy film industry here on the East Coast well into the 1920s. And even after the 1920s sort of became a home for what would later be called like independent filmmaking. So what was Paramount's motivation to build a studio here in Astoria? Paramount wanted to consolidate all of their sort of disparate studios and film printing labs here in Astoria. But one of the functions of having a major East Coast facility was to take advantage of the talent that was based on the East Coast. For example, Gloria Swanson, Rudolph Valentino, people that were big box office draws but didn't really initially anyway want to move out to the West Coast and really prefer to work here in New York City, um, a lot of theater actors starred in a lot of the Paramount features that were made here in the 20s. So Paramount really took advantage of the theater community, the acting community here in New York at their Astoria stages. In the beginning, it was still silent films, right? In the beginning, sure, it was still silent films being recorded. And interestingly, the studio expanded to accommodate sound. Um, they built a an extension to their stages in the late 20s to house all of the shops, the sort of scenic shops that had originally been situated uh, near the main stage because who cared if they were banging away while the actors were acting, but when sound came into the picture, they really had to segregate those things. So they expanded into what were their sort of outdoor stages to keep all of that stuff away from where the sound was being recorded. So when did the studio start to be used for more independent filmmaking? So after a bunch of good years, Paramount finally uh, packed up and left in about 1932 or so, leased the space to Western Electric, who ran it as a rental facility. So between roughly 1933 and 1941, the Astoria studio was used for a host of filmmaking activities. Um, Independent features like Emperor Jones, which starred Paul Robeson, um, that was shot here. And it was also used for what we would now call industrials, right? You know, corporate films and and, and such. Um, Also, Paramount continued to use the stages occasionally to shoot inserts and musical numbers that featured a lot of Broadway talent. But it was a real, you know, a real mix of activities that happened here between 33 and 41 that really kind of was a very New York flavor, a very sort of New York feel to um, to what they what they produced. And then afterwards, I assume World War II had quite an impact on filmmaking in the city. 
Well, World War II had a very big impact on filmmaking across the whole country. Um, In some ways, it it shut a lot of things down because the efforts all needed to go into the war. And, of course, a lot of people left to, to fight in the war. The extraordinary thing that happened in Astoria here during the war and afterwards was that the stages were taken over by the U.S. Army in 1942 to shoot training films and propaganda films to um, help with the war effort. So beginning in 1942, the complex started to uh, turn out those training films at a a really sort of amazing number and gradually took over more and more space that the complex enlarged over over time. And in 1943, uh, came to include the building we're sitting in now, which is Museum of the Moving Image, but it was used by the Army as a film processing lab. So how is the studio able to bounce back from that? So the Army occupied the studio site during World War II and after into the Cold War through the early years of Vietnam, finally shut down their facility here in 1970. The Army left in 1970, and the whole site really fell into disrepair. There was no money. There was vandalism, you know, drug use. It really just became um, sort of abandoned, essentially. It was overseen by the federal government, but really um, very little done to, really nothing done to maintain the site. And um, beginning in the early 1970s, an effort um, started to be made to return the site to functional use. And that effort was led by local politicians, by um, union leaders who wanted to get their members back to work here in in New York City at the Astoria stages. And in 1977, the Astoria Motion Picture Film and Television Foundation was founded to to really spearhead that effort. And it resulted eventually in in the very, very thriving Kaufman Astoria Studios. And this museum is also an offshoot of that effort because part of the deal with the government was to which is set aside part of the Astoria complex for public programmings, and that under the leadership of founder Rochelle Sloven, that became this museum. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for being here. That was Barbara Miller, curator of the collection and exhibitions at the Museum of the Moving Image. She was talking with Cityscape's senior producer, Veronica Volk. With so many films made in New York City, the industry has become a major economic engine that creates jobs on and off the screen. Enter Lost and Found Props in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. The company provides everything from vintage furniture to office supplies to film and other productions. I recently talked with Lost and Found Props manager Ken Wong. Ken, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Great. Glad to be here. So tell me about Lost and Found Props. Okay. Um, we're a prop rental company. We're located in Chelsea, New York City, and um, we were started by a stylist, Robin Glazer. Um, she's been in the business for a couple of decades, you know, well-established and well-known. And, um, you know, just sort of she's curated a collection of items that she's kind of used for her jobs and kind of grown it from there. And, uh, you know, it's been, we've been in business for about 14 years now. What kinds of items do you have in your warehouse? Um, it's a lot of dining. Uh, we, we do a lot of work with um, food magazines. Um, we have a lot of furniture, actually, which sort of sets us apart from a lot of our competitor companies. You know, it's a lot of modern furniture, Danish designers. Um, we have a lot of artwork as well. And, uh, I mean, we have just, it's like a, 
pretty broad variety of just kind of interesting, really beautiful items, sort of, you know, uh, create a visual environment with. What would you say are the most interesting items in your collection? Probably, I would say, you know, we have some, we have a, actually an extensive taxidermy collection, um, which is pretty interesting. It's pretty fun. Um, we have a variety of uh, strange cre uh, creatures. Um, some of them, like we have sort of a cranky old squirrel. We have like a Australian cassowary, which is kind of like an ostrich-like bird. What are among the most common props you're asked for? The most common props we're asked for, it's actually it's a lot of art. You know, we have a lot of art that's cleared for use, um, you know, with the, uh, with the original artists or with their estates. Um, you know, that's very popular now, especially with, you know, production companies, movies and films. Um, also, just the furniture is actually, uh, our furniture collection's been pretty high demand, like, you know, just classic leather sofas by Borg Mogensen. Also some Danish desks, you know, uh, from the 50s and 60s. Clearly, New York City is a hotbed of production, whether it be TV, film, magazine shoots. So how busy is your shop typically? Uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're pretty much busy, you know, 10 months out of the year. We're kind of cranking full speed all day. You know, we have like four employees here, which, you know, we're one of, we're relatively small prop shop in terms of uh, employee size, but... You know, we're pretty much, um, it's a pretty steady workload every day. You know, we're, we're open five days a week, and pretty much from the moment we get here, we're, we're taking calls, filling orders, and getting things ready to go. Ken, thanks so much for your time. <laughs> thanks so much, okay? Ken Wong is a manager at Lost and Found Props in Manhattan. They're online at lostandfoundprops.com. And that's a wrap for today's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Find us on all three at WFUV Cityscape. My thanks to senior producer Veronica Volk and producer Taylor Nolk. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.